Hello and welcome to the next episode of ITC Entertain the World podcast with myself, Jazz Wiseman. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Al Smudge and Rodney Marshall. Hiya, guys. Hiya. Evening, Jazz. And in this podcast, we're doing something a bit different. We're going to talk about an ITC film, The Tamarind Seed. I don't know if you gathered that by the theme music at the start. But before we really get into this, I need to say there is going to be a spoiler alert because we will be talking about certain plot points of the film. And really, we should start with why we are talking about an ITC film, because obviously lots of you associate ITC with television series such as Danger Man and The Prisoner and The Persuaders and Man in a Suitcase. But as Lou Grade and the company sort of grew and developed, Lou decided that he wanted to get into the feature film market. And he'd always had a little eye on the feature film market, because if you think to some of those 60 series that we've talked about in these podcasts, he was making kind of two part episodes that were going to be edited and then shown in cinemas around the world. So, for example, I'm talking about the fiction makers, the Saint movie, Vendetta for the Saint. I'm talking about the Baron two part episodes, Masquerade and Storm Warning. And there are a number of these. There's a man in a suitcase, one called To Chase a Million, which is obviously variation on a million bucks, part one and two. So Lou always had his eye on getting into cinema. The reason that he did those 60s films, by the way, is because at that time, television was developing throughout the world, really. There were areas of the world where the television industry hadn't really been established as such. So a way for Lou to get his ITC product, i.e. Roger Moore, the saint, into that market was to sell and show them the movies. So they would be able to see the fiction makers in places all over the world, for example, like Egypt or Thailand or North America, even though the television system was established there. You know, Mexico, South America. He sold those films all over the world. So that's just a little tiny bit of background into why Lou was looking at getting into the film industry. I don't know if you guys want to add anything there. This was going on quite late, actually, because the guys in Italy, even though they had the established channels RAI, a lot of guys who are into UFO will tell you their first sighting of UFO was in these Sunday afternoon cinema screenings. And that is quite late, really, when you would think they would have a, a decent thing established there. Is that a terrible pun, their first sighting of UFO? <laughs> it just struck me that obviously while some of those in the 60s were natural two-parters, obviously like in the case of the Persuaders, they were almost sort of quite random, weren't they, put together. I've often wondered what it was like going to the cinema and seeing that as a sort of feature film because it's two completely different parts, isn't it? Do you know how that worked? I think with the Persuaders, it was really just to sell the series into more territories and it was random. But like you say, they're smudge. Talking Persuaders as well. You know, in Italy, they made seven movies to show. Like you said, they're going on a Sunday afternoon to see this. I've got some photographs that an Italian fan sent to me of some cinemas posters outside the cinema showing Persuaders movies and said that, you know, that that would be their experience. They'd go and see the Persuaders and see it at the cinema, which would be quite an amazing thing, I suppose, in some ways, because, you know, Persuaders on the big screen yeah. sounds appealing, doesn't it? Especially yeah. with that 
location driven series you know we've gone into a lot of that it would look great on the cinematic screen whereas some of the back projections things you see in say um man in a suitcase variation on a million bucks i should imagine would probably look a little bit shoddy to a certain extent that would have been what one is getting from the early bond films isn't it you know you've got some quite shoddy back projection even mm. in those so no i mean in a way it's almost giving it the medium it deserves because it we're talking about shows each week on these podcasts that deserved a lot more than a tiny black and white tv in budley salterton isn't it yeah i mean that's the thing you wonder if, if that was your first experience of the itc things and then to come back down to 16 inch tv sets perhaps in black and white in subsequent years, it, it must sort of change your memory of the thing, perhaps. It's 1973. We're not talking about a television series. We're talking about the Tamarind Seed movie. We should say, really, why the Tamarind Seed, why we've chosen this. And the reason we've chosen this is because it's one of Lou's early full-budget feature films. He'd done a couple before this, but this is the first kind of, I'd say, not just a toe in the water. This is him really going for it, isn't it? And we should talk about the Tamarind Seed itself, the book, and how it became a film. The book was written by Evelyn Anthony, who's a pen name for Evelyn Ward Thomas. I don't know much about her myself. I know that this is the only example of one of her books that was turned into a film. Beyond that, no, I picked up the book, the first paperback edition, and I think that there is a paperback edition with sort of the film on the front, isn't the jazz? Yeah, there's a film tie-in paperback with a still on the front cover from the film, yes. I know not a lot about the book. I, mean, I was relying on Rodney for this, to be honest. But what you do see, obviously, is the book was published in 71 and then the film's in production in 73. So that, that's a very quick pickup for the book, whoever got the rights. Yeah, I thought that. Literally, it was almost like it had just come out and straight away someone's read this and thought this would make a great movie. And it seems that the rights were sort of snapped up, doesn't it? And Rodney, you, you were saying earlier in the week that a lot of the dialogue in the movie is basically word for word from the book. Almost every single line is literally word for word. And I, I don't say that as a criticism of Blake Edwards at all. It's actually quite nice to read a novel and then actually see a film which is faithfully stayed with that dialogue, because I think the dialogue on the whole works very, very well. There are only perhaps two things, apart from locations, which change between the book and the novel, uh, one of which is a lovely touch on the part of Blake Edwards towards the end of the movie when Anthony Quayle lights his pipe and it terrifies Judith because it reminds mm. her of the fire she's been involved with. That's not in the novel. Um, and I thought that was a lovely touch. So really, I mean, we're talking there about Blake Edwards. We should talk about the cast and the crew, really, and probably how this film came into existence because you've mentioned there Blake Edwards. So... In case anyone doesn't know about this film, it was directed by Blake Edwards of, I suppose, the Pink Panther theme. That's a 
I suppose the series of films that people will associate him with, although he's done so many more than that and had done more before this. The cast is a very impressive cast. It's Julie Andrews, Omar Sharif, Anthony Quayle, Sylvia Sims, Dan O'Herlihy, David Barron. There's a strong cast in this. And obviously some of these people we know from recently, for example, Anthony Quayle, we talked about him in The Strange Report, but you know, people will know these actors. But we should really just rewind a little bit there and say about how Blake Edwards and Julie Andrews got involved. Well, more to the point, I suppose, how did Lou Grade get Blake Edwards and Julie Andrews to do this film? In many ways, there's a long history between Grade and both of them because Grade had been the agent for Julie Andrews's mother and stepfather, who were a sort of singing duo. And they introduced him to Julie Andrews when she was five and she did a sort of little informal audition. And uh, he says in his autobiography, Still Dancing, that he would have loved to have done something about that. But given her age, it was never going to be practical. But he was obviously absolutely entranced by her voice, even at that age. And then in terms of Blake Edwards, you know, he was a huge fan, Lou was, of Peter Gunn. He'd already taken the, the leading actor and Henry Mancini from Peter Gunn and used them in one of his shows. Man of the and, world, that was, yeah. wasn't it? And so it's sort of almost a, a sort of a natural progression, taking the creator of Peter Gunn. And obviously, because he was married to Julie Andrews as well, in many ways, it, it, it seems like the perfect fit. And from what I understand, they were both at quite low points in their careers. Mm -hmm. Julie Andrews, I think, was quite short of confidence. And there are some wonderful passages in that book, Still Dancing, about the sort of attitude of the American press towards Julie Andrews when Lou Grade goes over there, which obviously was in terms of the Julie Andrews Hour, the TV series, which is all part of the sort of jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? As, as you say, Julie Andrews is coming back after a four-year layoff, ostensibly to look after the family, but the last film she'd done was Darling Lily, which absolutely bombed. She'd had the Gertrude Lawrence film, Star, that had flopped. That was a mega star-spangled thing, huge budget, long run in time. This gave her a wonderful opportunity to come back. Essentially, what it did is it gave her a, a sea change. It allowed her to come into straight acting and to demonstrate the maturity of her own performance, which was a, a very good thing. I think yeah. we also have to bear in mind that the press love to knock success i mean it, i think that applies certainly in the uk i think it probably applies in the states sometimes as well and you know sound of music for example we are talking you know the biggest thing in the whole of the 60s people talk about the beatles there's not a single beatles album which outsold the sound of music film track it's the number one album in the 60s and I guess she, she'd probably got tarred with that sort of brush of rather sweet and... Mary and, Poppins, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as Smudge points out, this is not only a chance for a sea change, it's a chance for her to play a part where she doesn't sing as well. Well, I was going to say, and I'm glad you picked that up, that, that I feel that the press had stereotyped her into this Mary Poppins kind of sound of music character where she was almost sickly sweet. 
And I watched a really interesting interview with Michael Parkinson, with her and Blake Edwards in 1974. They were on the show to promote the film, The Tamarind Seed. And all Parkinson wanted to do was pick apart Julie Andrews' sort of sweetness of character and talk about Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. I don't think the actual film Tamarind Seed was probably mentioned more than like for two seconds. And it seems that no matter what she did, she was always going to be tarred with this brush at that point in her career. And I think that's really sad because when you see her act in this film, she gives a brilliant performance. She's really understated. The part she plays of this sort of professional business-like woman, she's so good at it. And like we've talked before about actors acting with their eyes, there's so much in this performance that she does of acting with her eyes, particularly in the emotional scenes of sorrow or despair. She's so good at that. And I think mm-hmm. that if you had an image of Julie Andrews as being Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, if you watch this film, I think your perception might change us a little bit about her. Do you, would you agree with that? Uh, I yep. totally agree. I mean, I also I love the fact that Lou Grade stormed to her defense when he went out to America mm. for this conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he'd arrived a little bit late. His plane had been delayed. And he says that he had to be held back from actually going onto the podium. But later on that evening at the sort of the dinner where all those 150 journalists are gathered, he actually stood up and he said, you know, how dare you? If you did this in England, you'd be in a Tower of London. You know? mm. And and then he invited them all over to Britain and he actually paid for them all to come over to Britain to see that Julie Andrews would be a success. Now, again, I'm talking obviously Julie Andrews hour here now rather than the mm. film. But I think it shows not only loyalty on his part, but the fact that he was, you know, a man of integrity and he was appalled by the behavior and he put his money where his mouth was and you know this isn't the first time he's done that is it you look later on in julie's career and she's got films like sob and victor victoria and everybody even blake edwards is saying this is where she breaks the mold but this is where you can tell how overlooked the tamarind seed was because here she breaks the mold and as you say jazz she gives a wonderful performance she gives a measured performance she gives Mm -hmm. the character completely what it needs that there is a progression to the character within the storyline and she brings that out perfectly between the two major females in the film julie andrews and sylvia sims there's a strong use of silence a correlative use of silence between the two of them whereas sylvia's character uses silence for her own ends julie's silence is far more measured and considered and it's it's a damn good performance had anyone else played the part they would have been talking about her being up for an award the casting i mean yeah you can you can say the old nepotism strikes again it's husband and wife working together blah 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 but the casting is so fine here she's sensual but she's not sexy in inverted commas she's not that big bold sexy character and casting someone of that type would have killed it yeah because if she'd have been like a super attractive blonde stereotypically secretary type who you imagine that nudge nudge wink wink that would have completely spoiled the way this film builds and moves because you'd expect Mm. her just to jump 
straight in bed with this guy and it, that's the story done isn't it well i mean the, the the bottom line is julie andrews couldn't have played sylvia sims part sylvia sims could not have played julie andrews's part mm. and in a way i suppose julie andrews are we saying she was cast in this film or in a way does that film was cast for her wasn't it in terms of the way that uh, Lou Grade was sort of looking at setting everything up uh, with the two film deal, etc. And as I say, I mean, I can't think of anyone who would have been better in this part. She's attractive and she looks fine in the film. You can't argue the point. But she's also got that underlying intellect. I suppose we should really talk then about this bit where you've said about the Julie Andrews hour, because basically Lou got Julie Andrews and Blake Edwards involved because he wanted Julie Andrews to do a TV series. And that was the series that we know as the Julie Andrews Hour. And I think the deal was that they would agree to Julie's TV series if Lou would do two films for them. At that point, those films weren't known. They didn't know that the first film, for example, was going to be The Tamarind Seed. I think it was just like the deal was... TV series and two films. And this is, I think, where some people looking into the research of it have sort of fallen down and said that the film was pre-sold to ABC as a TV movie. Now, Lou did do that, but at the time, he didn't sell them the tamarind seed. He just sold them the Julie Andrews hour and two films, unnamed. Mm -hmm. And it was only after that. So there is some truth in what they say, but also it's a little bit ambiguous. Yeah, he would have taken his, I mean, it's basically like a bookmaker lays off bets. He defrayed his costs. He takes up a certain percentage on the guarantee of a TV showing, but he only took it up once things were rolling, once the films were actually in production, yeah. I, I believe, from, from what I've researched. It doesn't preclude circuit sales. It doesn't preclude theatre exhibition of the film. As you'll remember, in the old days, there was between four and seven year embargo on movies coming onto television, and it would be just selling the rights for that sort of thing. No, all I was going to add was, in a way, it's not that different from the way he sold some of the TV series anyway, is it? Because, you know, he sold shows like Man in a Suitcase without anyone having any idea what it was going to be or <laughs> yeah, who was going to be yeah. in it. Once that trust is there, I think it's there whether it's a movie or a TV series, isn't it? Lou was really our version of Sam Goldwyn. He was that sort of character. If you made a deal that his word was his bond, not obviously not as a, a major, but he had an equivalence of success and credibility, this side of the pond. And he, and he could do that thing. He could say, OK, I'm going to give you this bundle. I'm going to give you Julie Andrews, 12 shows, and I'm give you, going to give you two movies. And people would be happy to sign something. In effect, it didn't really matter what the two movies were, because I think when they did the deal, what they were really wanting was the Julie Andrews hour. So the films were sort of a bolt on that. Oh, we got these films as well that we can show. So.
there's a great cast in this and we've already mentioned briefly Omar Sharif and I think that was a real coup because like this guy's been in Lawrence of Arabia he's been in Dr Zhivago he's a big movie star at the time he's gonna put bums on seats and something about this film says to me Lou is really trying to make a splash here we'll go on to the titles and the music later but even from the titles and the music right through to everything the crew where they went on location the cast this is Lou trying to make a top dollar film this is no sort of oh you know cutting corners and making a cheapie this is a big budget production for its time Omar Sharif is key to that those are two of the iconic post-war films aren't they yeah and i mean in terms of lawrence of arabia you've got omar sharif you've got anthony quayle and originally it would have been jack hawkins as well so you'd have had three of the stars from that movie this is the double-edged sword of the casting here because he was a blessing and he was a curse because omar by this point is set up as the big romantic hero Arguably the biggest sort of lady's heart flutterer since Valentino. This became, I think, a bit of a pitfall to the film, as well as alongside the film's marketing, where everybody was expecting this romance. And I think a lot of critics and some of the public wrote it off as that. Playing devil's advocate, though, isn't there the other side to that is that it almost plays into our expectations that Mm -hmm. he is this sort of Lothario, that he is just sort of got an eye for getting this woman into bed. And of course, it's going to turn out that that's not the case at all. So he is playing against type and almost as viewers, we're forced to swallow our preconceptions and sort of take it. But it's a different Omar Sharif. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out. No, I I think that's a perfectly valid point. But the, the point is that particular point only works if you're coming to see the movie. In my opinion, half of the movie has been unsold or undersold. You mentioned about it being written off because of Omar. I also wonder if people wrote it off because of Julie Andrews and if they thought Julie Andrews sounded music, Mary Poppins, like I say, that stereotypical thing that they think she was like. And like you say as well, mixed in with that, Omar Sharif, do you think this was almost destined to fail before it started just because of that? I wouldn't call it a failure. It took five times its production costs. It mm. took a healthy $150 million equivalent today. It wasn't an out-and-out failure. I think we ha- we also have the problem, regardless of marketing, it's very difficult to label in terms of genre. And that makes it very, very difficult to market because you can't really call it a thriller. It's obviously got elements of Cold War espionage. There are elements of thriller in there. There's a romantic side to it. There's quite a satirical side to it. We were saying last time out we're, with our podcast about Strange Report that it's very difficult to label. Mm-hmm. And I think as a film, 007 is not difficult to market. You know, The Shining is not hard to market. Mm-hmm. How do you market the tamarind seed? What do you call it? Bringing it back to Omar, what you do get is, as, as Rodney implied a moment ago, you get an, an atypical performance. He's sort of not acting in that Lothario manner. He's not sort of playing his type, for want of a better phrase. And when I first started to watch the film, I thought, ah, this is a good Omar Sharif film. But then after you get through the first, say, 20 minutes, it starts to click and you you look at all this other cast that you've got and you look how well they're performing. And it's a very tight 
ensemble piece, really. I mean, there's so much interaction and so much depends on the interaction of the characters that it doesn't become anybody's movie in particular. You've got such a good spread in the casting. And some of those performances, I mean, like Sylvia Sims in particular, she's absolutely brilliant in this. Every scene she is in, she steals, doesn't she? Mm. She's, she makes it her scene and she's so great in this. And she was up for a BAFTA for this and I think she was robbed that she didn't get it. Ingrid Bergman got it for her awful performance in Murder on the Orient Express. I completely agree with everything you've both said about Sylvia Sims. What I would say is I think Dan O'Hurley, he is equally good in this film. It's a very, very different part. It's quite a difficult part in many ways. But actually, after the first time I'd written the film, when I was making a few notes, I put down that I think Judith and Theodore are the only positive characters in the film, as in the only characters we like. I mean, we have to remember, however brilliant Sylvia Sims is, and she is, Margaret Stevenson, not particularly bothered about her children. She sent them off to some remote boarding school. All she cares about, and she says on a number of occasions in the film, is she wants a Premier League. She wants one of the big five embassies in the world. She's been working all this time for it, and nothing is going to stop her. Mm. Doesn't really care about the nation's secrets <laughs> getting out. That's what she wants. She wants that embassy job. And he is actually, Fergus is a man of ideals. He actually believes in communism. He's believed in it since his time at Cambridge, which I presume is a wink at the Guy Burgesses and mm -hmm. Anthony Blunts, etc. Yep. But I think the actor plays the part with incredible dignity. And of course, mm -hmm. one of the ironies is that he actually develops, and this is done very well in the novel as well as the film, he develops actually quite an odd, but quite a deep friendship with Anthony Quayle's character, doesn't he? They actually find that they've got things in common because, you know, Loder is looked down on by everyone. He's working yes. class. He hasn't been to the right school. He hasn't got the right accent. In the novel, it says he's got the poor teeth associated with a working class background. Looking at those two characters, it's essentially looking into a mirror, isn't it? Because Loder is as committed on his side of the mirror. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is a big thing in this film. This, this is all about divisions. It starts from the opening titles and mm. moves throughout. And you're either one side or the other. And um, Stevenson is his side of the mirror, but they are two equally committed men. And the wonderful thing about O'Hurley, his performance as Stevenson, Stevenson can be the eye of the storm. He can be the center of the action. You don't realise sometimes that the action is focusing on him and then suddenly it builds and that there he is in the middle of it all. But O'Hurley, he captures that stillness, that calmness, that confidence even that comes from being as he's been in that position of respect and power for so many years. But they're also yeah. both outsiders, aren't they? I mean, Loder mm -hmm. is an outsider because of his background and because he's sort of between the lines, as it were, in terms of his job. But um, Fergus is gay, and it's not something that would have been acceptable in his profession. And so, in a sense, I wonder whether, even though there's no suggestion that Loder is aware that Fergus is gay, I wonder whether, again, they both feel they don't quite belong to the world that they move in. For me, it's a central theme of the movie. It's all about false faces. You've got the false faces in the intrigue and you've got those awfully banal, as you've described them, those, those embassy parties and all the sort of faux bonhomie, those sort of things. It's a film in which the characters have to wear a lot of masks 
and different faces at different times. And, and that's part of the intrigue to me. And that's why I can't understand. This is why I'm selling this film, because it is such a good quality film. And it's been bypassed by so many people. Yeah, I think that's also part of a delight for me is that particularly in the opening part of the film, we've got a lot of it on location, as we will talk later in Barbados. The conversations between Judith and Theodore, the conversations are crackling and they're interesting, they're intellectual, they're philosophical, they're about ideology, about, you know, are we governed by love, fate, you know, whatever else, fairy tales. And you compare that to the banality, yes, of those ambassadorial functions where it's all about doffing your cap or making sure you stayed at least half an hour so the ambassador saw you. Yep. And nothing of any interest in the taken in way of conversation. It's all sort of olive on sticks and martinis, which <laughs> I <laughs> would love, yeah. love with you as much. <laughs> Anthony Quayle there is Loder. I mean, he's a bit George Smiley, isn't he? You know, he's a bit of a bastard, if we're honest. But then occasionally he shows a more sort of understanding side. When he goes to see Judith at the end of the film, she's in the convalescent home. He can be more gentle than this. Yes. That, it's a bit. It's a bit late by then, isn't it? It um, is. It? it is. I mean, but it, I mean it, that he, scene in the Belgravia apartment, he is brutal. But I think Jazz is right. He he does get, he's a very amoral character. He's a typical spy master. He is smiley. He's got his quirks, his eccentricities, his thing with the please water my flowers. He leaves his little sign as he leaves the office. Mm. But at the end, in that final sequence with Judith, he does get a little piece of moral redemption. He didn't need to do that. He could have let mm. her believe what she believed. And not only does he do it, he does it in a way that's fundamental to the movie. He delivers the tamarind seed. Yeah, again. he's quite gentle there. And also what he does then subsequently does with Fergus, which we won't go into. He could have been a git there. In that gentle scene, I'm still thinking back to, you know, did you sleep with him? I'll ask you what I bloody well like <laughs> and all of that. And he is a bloodhound, isn't he? He is one of several characters who learns something by the end of the movie because there's a vein of truth, trust and belief. And so I think in that little interchange at the end, he learns that there is one truth of that central character. In the book, he's an ex-alcoholic. His wife's left him and he's now a teetotaler. And he says in order to do his job, he's got to remain absolutely sober the whole time because he might miss out on something. Now, mm. so they took that away. He's quite happy to have it all. Neat gin at one yeah. point. It's like when we see it at the first ball and Sylvia Sims' character is going on about how nobody likes him. But he's mm -hmm. not there to be liked. I mean, your thing about him being an outsider and, and your question about his accents. Yes, it doesn't fit in with the middle-class milieu in which he operates, but that accent tells me he's his own man. He doesn't feel that he has to conform. And also, he's made it to university himself, a point, mm -hmm. again, made in the book. He's self-made. He's not there because his dad went to Eton and it's opened a door for him. He's mm -hmm. had to do it the hard way. Yeah. I was just wondering what the two of you feel about... I get the impression in the film that even though Sylvia Sims' character almost hates her husband now, mm -hmm. I get the feeling that Fergus, in a platonic way, he still loves her. Or is that just me? Margaret is one of the most complicated characters in the picture. Yeah. You have an assumption that <laughs> Margaret entered the marriage in normal terms with certain expectations. There are children of the marriage. Whether the guy came out as gay, 
much later on or whatever, we do not know. She's a very, very complicated thing. But I think there is something, there are two indicators to me in the film that there is something in there still from Fergus's point of view. There's the scene, the mirror shot scene, the conversation in the mirror jazz. You'll remember yeah, what that is. Yeah, that's a beautiful one. Yeah, um, it's, it's where basically they've come back from the the one that basically Judith was having an affair with. Fergus is trying to find out who told his yes. wife that there's a sus- suspect of this character going on. Patterson, yeah, the invest- investigation into Patterson. Yeah. That's the speech the tail end of the scene where she says, I think, what would Loder think if he knew our esteemed minister was queer, queer yeah. or something? There's a, there's a hell of a lot of homophobia in Margaret. But at the end of the scene, there's a lovely shot because you see Margaret's face because she's been stymied because Fergus walks away and he doesn't react. And that to me suggests he's trying to do something. He's trying to make it work. And again, the scene in the study where Margaret has her big scene and the opening of that is... He pulls open the drawer and he looks at the gun and something stops him doing what they used to call the honourable thing. I was going to say, I think there's a third scene. It's towards the end where they're in, I think, the kitchenette kind of thing. And he says to her, are the children coming down this weekend? And that's the first time you see him show any kind of family emotion towards her. And I think that he deeply cares about his wife even though he probably doesn't like her or love her still i think he cares that's the difference and he doesn't care necessarily about her in the way that i used to love this woman i think he cares because he knows that she could drop him in it and i think he cares that i I need to kind of keep her sweet there's a counter to that in in the scene just after she's threatened to ruin him he comes in in the limousine and he says, and again, this is the stillness of the character and the way it's played. He just says quite calmly, ruin us both? I don't mm-hmm. think so. And she actually does look nervous there because you've had the impact you've seen before where she's delivered her diatribe against him and it's gone bang, bang, bang. And that's a shocker. That's a pivotal scene. And then suddenly he's just there. And, he, and with that one little phrase, he's pouring oil on. Turn the he's saying, thing. you know, don't count your chickens. She's not looking for love elsewhere. She's only looking for sex, isn't she? I mean, uh, with with Brian Marshall's character, there's no love. There's not even any tenderness. He doesn't even want to turn the TV off. It's the same time next Thursday meeting. And we learn later on when she's goading Fergus, basically. She says, oh, did Loda tell you who it was this time? So we know that several of these affairs have gone on in the past. In her logic for what's happened to her within the marriage, that is perfectly justified, I would mm. suspect. But but she is such a lovely, complicated character. There is so much to her. There are so many mm. layers to her that she's got this wonderfully twisted morality when she says about Judith, oh, that bitch who's been sleeping with the Russian. <laughs> yes. You know, and she's rampantly homophobic and she's got all these issues. But queen and country, whatever, flag comes up, I salute it. And she's such a, a mixed up woman and it's, it's a beautiful character. She assumes that Fergus's friendship with Loda must mean that Loda's gay. Yeah, she yeah. can't understand that actually. I think that they are sort of secret sharers in a nice way. A little sort of honourable mention here, I suppose, to Oscar Holmlucker, who played General Golotsin. We mentioned Jack Hawkins earlier, didn't we? And Jack Hawkins mm-hmm. was intended to play that part, but he died before the production began. And 
I suppose he's sort of maybe typecast slightly that he's the Russian head of the Paris spy ring. But I thought he was great and he had some lovely little lines and nice little touches and lovely scenes. The sort of first time we see him where he comes into the centre of the shot and the camera yep. changes, but also the second time we kind of meet him where, again, he walks into the shot where they're showing a foreign office memo. It's being projected onto a screen. There's a couple of lovely little shots of him. I thought he was a good and well-played character. Great eyebrows. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 he doesn't need makeup, does he? He already looks the part of that Iron Curtain sort of office man. That first entrance where he sort of just looms into the centre of the frame with that big smile on his face in the middle of the ambassador's affair. There's a slight change of the focus in the camera, so you just literally centre on him. It's wonderful. And um, his casting, it refers it back to the Ipcrest file and funeral in Berlin. It gives it that real sort of 60s spy vibe. And another cracking shot you've got is when he's examining the stamp in the magnifying glass. Mm -hmm classic spy thriller stuff like you say he's got some wonderful lines towards the end of the movie and he's sort of contemplating his situation he said uh, and i think all the fools are on my side Brilliant <laughs> yeah, stuff. Does, doesn't he? yeah well yeah. i mean although the guy only appears in one scene um theodore's secretary who he talks to from barbados i thought that was a great scene because you suddenly see and i'm sure it's realistic Within a matter of seconds, you know, they're having a jovial conversation. They obviously have a good relationship. And suddenly the doors have sprung open and the guy's off and he's going to be tortured back in the, what's the name of the KGB building in Moscow? the Lubyanka. Uh, and you think, Christ, that's probably how it is. A quick mention of some of the crew on this. In terms of ITC people, we've got Johnny Goodman, who's a familiar name, you know, Saint, Persuaders, Baron, the Champions. Malcolm Christopher, who was doing the locations. So again, Saint, Baron, Champions. So there's a nice little tie in there. The film was produced by Ken Wales, but the most important person I think here is the cinematographer, and that's Freddie Young. And the cinematography in this film is stunning. And again, you know, we're talking things like Lawrence of Arabia. The cinematography in this film is, again, Lou going for top draw, top quality. Yep. It's not like a cheapskate thing at all. You look at the some of these shots in this are so beautifully shot and very, very iconic. We talked about Barbados. The scenes where Judith is just walking along, ambling along, thinking about things at the start of the film along those beaches, the sunset. Mm. They're just gorgeous, aren't they? That sequence alone, I love that sequence, the way that they do her progression along the beach as a series of soft mixes. Mm. Really, really nice. It gives you the, the really sort of contemplative, peaceful feeling. But it also draws you in as a viewer. You know, and you're looking at this character and, she, and she's wandering around. And you can see she's thinking and you're thinking, what is she thinking about? What is she worried about? But there's one point where she comes into perfect profile, centre frame. Centre frame to me in this film is very important. And Freddie Young's lighting is just sublime. You've got the perfect hint of sunset colour on her face. And that little uh, shadow behind her shoulder, that lighting is 
perfectly balanced. As you said, Jazz, in that um, article in American Cinematographer, he said he was so lucky with the weather and they spent so much time capturing sunsets. And one of the most gorgeous framings is the last visit to the Barbados Beach apartment and you're shooting onto Omar Sharif looking out to sea through the window. Yeah. And the colour palette behind him on that sunset is absolutely stunning. Nice. Gorgeous, isn't it? We could talk about those locations because I suppose the film is primarily set in three locations. There's Barbados, there's Paris, and there's London. And the Barbados scenes are just truly magnificent. Not only the scenes where they meet and they're on the beach, but also there's that lovely... And this is what I think about this film. This film has got a gentle pace at the start. It allows the story to breathe. You can see how these two characters are beginning to, they're trying to suss each other out. Omar Sharif, is, is he just trying to get her in bed? Julie Andrews is ice cold at the start and then slowly warms to him. But there's that thing where they go off to the museum and they go in a little mini moke and they drive all around the island on, on these little roads and you just... The way that is shot as well, it feels, again, a bit like Persuaders, it feels so warm and mm. lovely, doesn't it? Well, I mean, those hilly plantation images are just stunning, aren't they? Yeah. They're yeah. absolutely brilliant. Those are the ones that almost stand out most. But I mean, and again, it is in the book. There is this sense that when you're in on the island, you're in what they call Barbadian time, that time doesn't really matter. They're never in a hurry to go anywhere. And yet, as soon as you're back in those ambassadorial functions and dinner parties, everyone's talking about time. Hurry up, dear. I don't want to get there after the ambassador starts his speech. I love that contrast between the relaxation on the island where, oh, you know, it's almost like that manana yep. type ethos and this ridiculous scuttling to get to yet another tedious dinner party. Those little drives in the moke, there is such a sense of space and you see how beautiful the countryside is. You suddenly remember you're in an ITC production and there's no back projection. It's absolutely <laughs> yeah. adorable. The last scene we get in Barbados the second time around at the nursing home. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, mm. uh, what a location that is. You've got these yep. gardens looking out over the bay and this real sense of peace as if, yeah, that would be the sort of place you'd want to be if you were recuperating. What strikes me about the film is it says filmed on location in Barbados, London, Paris. And I think it really is filmed on location. I, I'm struggling now to see where film studio sets come into it because there are a couple of scenes, one in Judith's flat and there's another somewhere else, where the actors just move slightly off mic and you can hear the cold bounce of a proper wall. Mm. The sound bounces off a proper wall. I wonder if it was all literally done in hired houses and hotels and what have you. Yeah, I can't think of a, a studio set at all. Harry Potter is down there, isn't he, on the credits, so he must have created something for it. The Barbadian Museum, would that be a set? No. Again, you can hear live sound in there, so that, I don't mm. think that's a set. And it's too elaborate, really. But there's the little restaurant, uh, you know, the one with all the bottles and pictures. That could have been a set, but even so, I don't think that is. Malcolm Christopher's location work he found some brilliant places. I mean, you've got the Russian embassy with that beautiful mm -hmm. tapestry. And I was, when I first saw that, I was thinking, oh, what a lovely set. And then a few bits into the film, about three quarters of the way into the film, they do a reverse and you see people outside and you realize mm. it's not a set. 
Yeah, and all the stuff around London, around South Eaton Square and that, that's really well done. And those locations, again, I think are really well well sourced, like you say, by Malcolm Christopher, because they are the sort of place that you would imagine Judith living, perhaps with her husband, obviously, because we should explain her. She's a widower. That you could imagine like embassy staff living. The two colours, there are two primary colours in that Belgravia house of hers, pink and bright red. I mean, that kitchen Mm. is almost blood red. And it interests me because here's a character who's told us she's very much blue, that she's Mm. very much traditional. And the colours in that house tell me that part of her certainly isn't. Because, as I said, they're really bold. I mean, all those bookcases of this wonderful bright pink. And as I say, the kitchen is about as loud a red as you could get, which suggests to me there's real passion in her, even if she hasn't been aware of that yet. This is the good thing about the character and the way the first half of the film progresses. And to me, the first half is sort of romance and suspicion. And the second half is the spy story and the establishment of trust. Brilliant thing that Julie Andrews brings to this and the character is that in the first half, you see that development. You literally see it on her face sometimes. And she'll take a little step forward with Sverdlov. But every time she goes that bit forward, she always does a little bit of a check back. We know she's not a timid character. But she's got a lot to get over. She's recently lost her husband. Patterson has taken advantage of her in that situation. And that relationship has bombed. So you can't blame her for being wary, stroke suspicious. That interrogation scene, which I do think is one of the great scenes in the film, she doesn't collapse. I sort of noted that, yeah, she's battered and bewildered. She almost can't believe it, even though Theodore has warned mm-hmm. that this will happen. But she stays quite bold. She stands her ground. Yeah, she, she doesn't does. allow Anthony Quayle's character to sort of browbeat her, does she? Yeah, she tells him, get to the point. And then when his part of the conversation is over, she says, yeah, I'll tell you X, Y and Z, but I'm not going to spy on him for you. She's got a, a steel core. The title sequence for this film was designed by Morris Binder and the theme music was provided by John Barry. Again, to me, this is Lou Grade saying this is big budget because John Barry, obviously, James Bond film composer and Morris Binder, again, Bond title sequences. You don't get any better than that at this point in British cinema. And those titles, that whole theme of the movie of red and blue is where it all starts. Start with the blue of Julie Andrews' eye that then goes into the red of Omar Sharif's head. These titles are so well thought out and really well created, but they all just revolve around the use of red and blue. And particularly at the end where the Red Sea is crashing waves and then that naturally changes back to the natural hue of the blue. I thought they were amazing. And the music was great. It's a work of art. And when you see, I mean, this is the first thing you see. There's no sort of like a, a teasy you might get mm. in a in a TV series. And uh, the first time I watched this, because I watched it three times for the pod. And the first time I was just like, wow. I mean, you're thinking this is big time. You couldn't 
ask for anything more lavish. And then, as you said, as the film unfolds and you realise how blue and red on every single level uh, as a light motifs that run throughout the film, it just makes them even more brilliant. It does the other thing as well. It splits the screen. And that is one of my big visual references in this. There's so many shots where Blake Edwards splits the screen and you're either on one side or the other. And, and that's sort of evocative of the East versus West struggle or whatever. But the titles are absolutely gorgeous. I mean, there's that wonderful fade from the profile shot of Sharif into that gorgeous deep orange stroke red sunset with the hint of the tree coming down mm. and where Omar's head's coming towards you wreathed in smoke it's, it sort of makes him kind of devilish almost but Morris was the biggest titles artist of that period you had him over here and you had Saul Bass in Hollywood and if you got either of those guys doing your titles you knew you were going to get sort of bang for your buck we should also point out as well in those titles there's the Baron Jag going <laughs> over the over the cliff again the ITC Jag but against that sort of deep red that we're talking about every time I put this film on and I see those titles I just I'm wowed by them and all, all of this underpinned by a score that can only be John Barry. It's lush, it's resonant, and when he moves into the second half of the movie, the suspense theme. I was going to say, that suspense theme reminds me of the Honor Majesty's Secret Service suspense mm -hmm. scene where he goes into Gumbolt's office and photocopies and the photocopy arrives from the building site thing. Mm -hmm. That's very similar. So there's no dialogue, but the music gets louder and louder and louder and you're thinking something's going to happen here. Personally, I just thought it went on a little bit too long. But then I personally think the airport sequence with Brian Marshall following the Russian who's following I think that's in danger of maybe going on just a few minutes too long. I think that builds, that's pretty well constructed. I mean, you, you're talking about this guy who's has edited things like The Haunting and The End of the Six Happiness. I think his editing is quite tight on these suspense sequences. He really changes the pace of the film. To me, the airport thing is a lovely piece of cat and mouse. I loved a little scene in the toy shop, apart from anything else. It's a sort of little reminder of what proper toy shops were like in those days. But why on earth does he pick up the little sort of toy gun rather than plant a real one on him? He does deliberate a little bit. He's looking for something that's going to create a brief diversion. Yeah, and it's also a way for him to say to the Russian guy, we've clocked Marking you. his card, sort of. Yeah, because there's the nice little way when they do stop the Russian, he sidesteps the metal detector by flashing his pass, and he puts it in such a position that the Russian guy can Thank see, you. and you can see the reaction on the Russian guy's face. Yeah. He knows he's been had. And also with that airport scene as well, you get those really cool and funky <laughs> telephone kiosk things, those little back-to-back -back <laughs> chair things. But there is some Super 8 footage of them filming those scenes at Heathrow Airport, and they obviously got good cooperation there to get that, because they are sort of meandering all the way through the airport they're at the entrance and then they're they're in the booking in and then they're on the travelator and they're on the bit where you join the aircraft 
so again this is Lou sort of pulling all the stops saying like we're not going to just do one little bit we're going to use the whole thing I do love that little image as he pops up behind the kiosk just mm. as Brian Marshall has announced that he's lost his man or whatever because it sort of does tell us that even though Theodore's job is not as a sort of investigator he's better at doing it than they are that other little bit in the airport with the check-in desk when Judith arrives and then we don't understand how but somehow McLeod has got in front of her. One of the big differences in the book when her husband dies Judith moves to America and so instead of Paris and London we've got Washington and New York. So she's actually working for United Nations. To me, I like that transference to London because Belgravia works so well, particularly in those night scenes. Yeah. I think when they're walking the streets and, and the Russians are watching them, the British are watching them. And those scenes in Paris, all those elegant avenues, it really does work very well. Yeah, I mean, I think if you went to sort of New York and Washington, you'd be stuck in very similar cityscapes. As you say, Rodney, you've got that bit of definition. You've got the marked difference between London and Paris. Well, also as well, New York at that time was quite run down. And the difference visually between London and Paris is striking. Whereas to most of you, I would say European audience, we wouldn't know the difference if it was Washington or New York, unless you're going to sort of do it out of particular landmarks. We haven't mentioned the fact that for Canada, obviously they go to Switzerland for a final scene. And I know that they did go there because I've mm. read that in three or four sources. And that yeah. in itself, considering that's for six, seconds of footage yeah. uh, not much more perhaps even less um, that again shows me that this is a film pulling all the stops out I think Blake Edwards' direction in this is very strong. That partnership with Freddie Young, I think they clearly understood each other here. You made a very interesting point about the use of the sort of screen being split. That's really subtly done. But once you notice it, you can't help but not notice it, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So it's done with like bookcases or it's done with umbrellas. Yeah. It's really, really clever that. The first one is when Theodore introduces himself. And I think this is a beautiful shot because you've got the camera on Judith stroke Julie. She's sitting there reading that book and you've got a two thirds split on the window frame. This is got to be an optical print because it's so clear but you see him first as that reflection you in do. the window and he, he introduces himself in voiceover and I, I think that's a lovely little touch and, and one of the most brilliant split screen things for me is the confrontation with margaret when she walks into the library just after fergus has looked at the gun if you notice all the way down the middle of the bookcase all the books are red that use of red light, I think it's in almost a corridor or the restaurant, isn't it? And then again yeah. in the nightclub, it, yeah. it yes. works so beautifully because it is atmospheric, but it, you almost feel as if visually it's backing up all the themes as well. Like you say, that little restaurant shot, because they actually bounce the light from outside the door behind Theodore and Judith as they come in. The nightclub scene is just a wash with red mm, yeah. initially. But as they cut into the close-ups, as Theodore starts talking, you notice because there are some, some green stroke blue effect lights 
in the ceiling. You've got that half and half thing. You've got predominant face lit in red, and then the emphasizing shadow is in that sort of green blue. And again, that's that split motif to me. And both those scenes, they're not just quick scenes. Back to that restaurant scene, it's a dialogue-heavy scene. That It's kind of an essential part, really, of how this thing is going to unwind. And then moving on to that nightclub scene, which, again, I think that we've all agreed is just beautifully shot, especially right at the start where they emerge in the doorway and it's all red. And you see these two people walking by, and then eventually those two people who are walking by become characters in the film. And, and one is quite... Well, she's got a key line of dialogue, really, that she delivers mm. later on. They're not just like two-second blink, get-on-with-the-film scenes. That restaurant scene is pivotal to the whole story, really, because it's like a first date. They're not on holiday anymore. They yeah. comment on the fact that their clothes are different. She says, well, it's going to take me a while to get used to you wearing a suit. And I thought you'd mm. have a red tie, she jokes. He comments on her clothes. And it's almost as if now we're not in Barbadian time. Now we're not on holiday. Can we still make this work? There's a little bit in the nightclub scene where his colleague Medmanov comes in. We've been progressing into the relationship of trust for quite a while now. But suddenly, when Medmanov comes in, Medmanov only speaks Russian. And there's that brief sequence where he's talking to Medmanov in Russian. Suddenly you think, I've gone with this. I've believed in this. I think this is a proper romance build-up. But then suddenly you hear them speaking in Russian again. And you're thinking, they could be saying anything. Is she still just a fish on the line to him? Well, this brings up a brilliant question, isn't it? Which is, at what point do we feel that we trust Theodore? This is where the title comes into play. The trust is within the tamarind seed. And when he first delivers the tamarind seed, because she gets on the plane, she's leaving Barbados, to her, this is the end of the affair. He gives her that envelope to open on the plane. Don't open it in my presence, basically. She opens it. It's the tamarind seed. It's a head-shaped tamarind seed. I think that's the point where trust begins to build. If you look at her face after she's opened the envelope, that is him letting her have her dream. So that becomes the principal totem of the film. It is a thing of trust at the Tamarind Seed actions later on. I think that's the point where we start to think maybe this chap's on the level. But does that also tell us that he's not the cynic that he has said he is? Because even if you quite rightly say he's giving her what she wants, the charm of the story, the fairy tale, whatever. But it also suggests that a lot of what he has said about it's all about fate or I don't believe in this or that. It suggests to me that actually there's a true romantic in him as well. Well, he's written initially as a Russian romantic. He's got all these things about fairy tales. God is a fairy tale. We invented fairy tales, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> But what these two come to grips with across the, the running time of the film, these are two people looking for something or someone to believe in. And that's what changes in him, I think. Trust is a key part of this film, though, in terms mm -hmm. of the theme, isn't it? There are a number mm -hmm. of themes in this film. And that trust, like you say, besides trust, one of, the, I think, of the key themes of this film is it keeps you guessing, as, like you say, is he or isn't he going to, spoiler alert, defect? Because it's not till towards the end that I think that you genuinely believe that he is going to do it. You're not quite sure all the way through. And I liked that, that it kept you thinking, 
is he really going to try and get her over or is he actually not going to go? He's going to go himself. There is a point sort of like possibly two thirds, three quarters of the way through the film where he's had the notice to go back to Russia because of the divorce. Mm. And he speaks to her first. And there's a point there where he categorically says, because she says, why don't you just hop off the plane halfway and lose yourself yeah. in Europe? And he said, I don't want to do that because I don't want to be exiled. At that point, he is still part of the party, he's part of the country, he's got the belief in Mother Russia. So the actual crux of defection doesn't really develop till, as you say, quite late on in the film. And there's a seed of doubt in him there, though, isn't there? Because he knows that his first secretary has gone back, and like mm. you say, he's being tortured. And I think he does know if he goes back, his wife's going to divorce him, and he's going to end up being tortured as well. We learn that actually there are red aspects to her character. It's in the Bridgetown Museum where she starts spouting some Marx things and she actually mm. says, yeah. well, actually, you must have beliefs because you believe in trying to help everyone, you know, for the common cause. She's not as blue as she thinks she is. He admits mm. that there are aspects of the West he likes. He prefers drinking whiskey to vodka, which is already sort of flagged mm. him up as a possible <laughs> defector for his sort of <laughs> Russian bosses. Isn't that in a way what love is? It's a way of actually understanding that you've got to embrace parts of the other person's personality or interests. This is the beauty of the film. It is so multi-layered thematically. When you stop and study it properly, there's a hell of a lot you can see in it. I think one of the things I love about the absolute emptiness of those lives in the embassies is the fact that, you know, we said earlier about there's no meaningful dialogue, etc., that goes along. But they could almost be anywhere. I mean, that yes. embassy could be anywhere. There's that scene where they go to play golf. That could be in England. It could be in France. It could be in anywhere on this earth. And to me, it just tells you that wherever they go in their embassies, they're just in their own little hermetically sealed bubble. Yeah. There are two visual references to that. And if you'll pardon the expression, it's all balls. You've got the, <laughs> when they come into the opening shot of the first meeting at the embassy, there's a tight lock onto the central pommel of the chandelier, a yeah. little globe. And then as you've said with the golf game, we start tight focused on the golf ball. And, th and these are all sort of little symbolic worlds. They're all, like you say, they're all in their own cloistered little environment. They'll just move from posting to posting to posting. The parties will be the same. And, and as Theodore says, the faces will be the same. And it, it's just that sheer artifice within that society where they all pretend to enjoy the damn stuff. They're all bored and they're all having affairs. Every, I think it's quite knows. seedy as well. Mm. Because CD is a word we tend to associate with people who haven't got things or, you know, a, a back street in the East mm. End in a black and white movie. But actually, there is something quite seedy about this supposedly glamorous world, isn't there?
Sylvia's facial expressions convey so much and she just keeps to that same level here. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying where I felt that Sylvia Sims steals all the scenes she's in because Mm. she's obviously central to the plot. She hasn't got hours of screen time and she's probably got five or six really key scenes. But every single one of them you watch, you just think, yeah, here's Sylvia, this actress that we know from all the ITC shows. This is a lady that is an absolutely brilliant actress. And like I say, every scene, whether it be if she's fighting with Fergus, even like the side of her where she's caring for Captain Patterson's wife, where she's fainted, she steals that as well. I mean, like, to be honest, I don't think the actress there, Celia Bannerman, really does much. It's it's a nothing part for her, isn't it? It is. It's it's a really nothing part. But that particular scene pivots on that reaction shot from Sylvia. And again, it's no dialogue. You just get Mm. that reaction shot. And that is the whole point of that scene. And like you say, fighting with Fergus, that she may be fighting with Fergus, but there's no histrionics. That this lady knows her own mind, you know she means business. It's a performance that comes from a power within the character. Again, I mean, we've said that Judith has got a steel cord. Margaret is equally as strong. The two lead females are very, very similar in, in so many ways. They've both been damaged. They both know their own minds. They're both fairly resolute. And Margaret particularly knows where she wants to go. I'd sort of say slightly in Celia Benenman's defence. I actually think she plays the part pretty well because it is a nothing part. She's one of the few characters you have to sort of feel for a bit. She's never quite sure. Should she pick up that phone when that little mm. light flashes because mm. she knows her husband's probably talking to his lover stroke ex-lover? She's pregnant. She's in a foreign country. You know, one lady has taken sort of pity on her or likes her, but she's in a world that she doesn't really feel she belongs in and she's pregnant from that and enjoying it fart. and that husband is such a wet fart I mean, I would have to say that even though Judith Farrow does say, she admits, doesn't she, to Theodore at one point, that he was good in bed. She says, actually, physically, it was very satisfying because he asks her and she answers. But I would have to say Judith is such a great character. Why on earth did she allow herself to be shagged by that ridiculous Captain Patterson? Because he is wet. He's rather unpleasant, isn't he, as a character? He's mm-hmm. a chinless wonder, and he probably he is did. a chinless wonder. And he yes. probably took advantage of her when she yes. was at her lowest. Moving on, we need to discuss how this film was marketed, and not only that, how it performed and stuff in cinema. Because we've touched on this, and I think that probably critics have made this point. I think this was sold as a romantic, maybe slightly romantic thriller which this movie is not. And I think where we were talking earlier about this movie struggles for an identity, it is not a straight run-of-the-mill spy genre film. It is not a straight romantic film. It's such a mix in a lovely way that you can see why when it came out, they probably thought, well, how are we going to sell this film? How are we going to get bums on seats in the box office for this? Because it's a, I think it's quite a hard film to sell. Okay, the cast is great. The locations are great. We said the story has been really sensitively and well made. But what do you say about this film to get people to watch it at that time? One of my biggest bugbears is with the poster. That overemphasizes the romantic angles. doesn't lift the thriller side of it up too much. It's a single line from Theodore. I think it's when they're walking on the beach. How are you going to survive if you can't tell the difference between one lie and the other? 
that to me should have been the tagline of the poster because that's a, mm-hmm. a, cen- a central premise to the film. This is where Lou and ITC fell down a bit. They were mm-hmm. good at marketing their TV series, you know, all those brilliant promotional brochures and they knew how to sell action adventure. This isn't action adventure. You know, I think Lou's marketing department were kind of stumped by this. It's a puzzle because you pointed out, Jazz, in that Super 8 movie that you see, there's a whole huge canopy display in the main Odeon Theatre, Leicester Square. It did reasonable business. It didn't set the world on fire. I'd have had as my line for the movie, I'd have had Loda's line. In my line Mm -hmm. of business has taught me three things. No one's to be trusted. No one's to be believed. And anyone is capable of doing anything. Because to me, Mm -hmm. that's also a line that radiates throughout the movie. I mean, either of our suggestions Mm -hmm. would work a lot better. And I think would give you a bit more of an idea because that would cover the political side, the romance side, the ideology side, everything. To me, that poster with the large profiles of Sharif and Andrews on it, if you look at that, that is a Zhivago-esque picture, isn't it? Yeah, very much so, yeah. It wouldn't have made me want to go to see the film. And when you suggested, Jazz, weeks ago that we did a podcast on this, all I'd seen was the movie poster and it Mm -hmm. didn't grab me. Doesn't prepare you for that music and the the titles, does it? It's a sort of undersold ITC movie. Why don't people know about it? Mm -hmm. And it's always puzzled me since. How do you sell this movie? We're talking about it. We don't really know how to sell it. So you can imagine at the time. So this is 74. So what's just come out in the cinema? The Exorcist? There was The Exorcist. There was a, on the circuit at the time, there was a re-release of Last Tango in Paris. Three Musketeers had just done mm. reasonable business to enter the top 10 for the year. As I've said, it was at a point in the 70s where in the following year, we would hit the lowest cinema admissions for the decade. The whole cinema thing, the pendulum was on a downswing anyway. So you would struggle to get bombs on seats. And had been for a while, hadn't it? It had, but when you look at it, though, it did recover five times its cost. So in in terms of the money, I mean, yes, the percentages on the deal, on the gross, the percentages would have made Blake and Julie around, around two million bucks. Yeah, you should expand on that because I don't think we've said what the deal was. It was 10 on the gross for Julie and 5 on the gross for Blake and the basic fees were just a sort of retainer against the percentage points on the gross. And then Lou said the movie didn't make much money for ITC because the Edwards is creamed off most of his profit. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that was Lou talking for the taxman. It was shown in American cinemas. Um, we've got some trade papers to prove it was being screened in um, North American cinemas and there's a North American press campaign book mm-hmm. It went into the cinema chain in North America. I think distribution in Europe wasn't particularly brilliant. We've talked about the distributors basically said that it's a distribution company that you've hardly ever heard of. And their track record before was pretty much zilch. And the track record afterwards was pretty much zilch. You've got the other problem, of course, that we are hitting the nadir of cinema admissions for the 70s. So I just want to put in a little bit of trivia about this film because I I think it's real fun. The book that Judith is reading is the Kingsley Amos book, The Riverside Villa's Murder, 
But this is the film that also features an Alfred Hitchcock film in Foreign Correspondent, which is being watched at one time. But also, this is the film, and this is why I love that toy shop, where you get the on the buses game in the toy shop. And not only do you get that, you get the Escape from Cold It's game, you get Lego posters, you get Triag train sets. I freeze framed that whole scene and got all the toys. And I was thinking like, this reminds me so much of when I was a kid and my mum worked in a toy shop after we left the pub. Yeah, it was a real sort of blast from the past. Very, very nice. A nice, nice mm. little scene. Yeah, yeah, and there's two people watching that scene being filmed as he enters the toy shop, which I spotted, which was I thought was fun. We should talk about the second movie that beyond the tamarind seed, but was part of this deal. That movie was obviously the return of the Pink Panther. That was the second movie. I love what Lou Grade had to say about that in his autobiography because Blake Edwards had put a second film proposal to him and Lou Grade makes it quite clear in no uncertain terms. He looked at this and he was absolutely appalled at the idea of making it. And so he, he said, well, look, let's just cut our losses and say we've just made the one film. That's fine. And Blake Edwards got back to him and said, look, my career is at such a low point. I need another good movie. And... By all accounts, it, it had reached a point in the Pink Panther history where Blake Edwards wasn't even talking to Peter Sellers anymore, but Lou Grade refused to accept people saying, oh, it won't work, it'll be a disaster. He got them back together. And history tells us that it was a huge success. There are other elements of choice related to this movie because apparently played again where Don Black with the lyric tips his hat to Casablanca, another film with lovers wrapped in an intrigue. Uh, played again was actually the second choice of song and the initial song was something to do with two lovers meeting at the cinema and I can't see how this would have played out in the movie one line from the song which both Barry and Black preferred but they were vetoed says we gave each other a mustard flavored kiss presumably talking about snogging after eating a hot dog and I'm thinking, you preferred that song? I mean, the two of you didn't agree with me on the John Barry score at the airport, but uh-huh. I know one thing you will both agree with me on is that John Barry was absolutely wrong when he said the Judith Theodore chemistry didn't work. Mm-hmm. I don't think he could have been more wrong because I think it works perfectly. It's beautifully paced. It's completely believable. And I mm-hmm. think the two actors were a perfect combination. The character required Julie Andrews to seem aloof initially, and that's just a natural part of the role, and it really does develop. And I think when you see them sort of like in the restaurant scene, there is a chemistry firing up there. There's, There's no sort of argument about that to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the casting of those two is perfect, and I think they played their parts brilliantly. And I think that it was understated a lot of the time it was just really well acted by two very very competent actors and i think this film shows that julie andrews could actually do serious acting as well as all the song and dance and my fair lady stuff she'd matured a hell of a lot in the the intervening four years well she probably had that maturity before she just wasn't allowed this really was a, a mature and the whole thing about will they won't they that was so well handled with the physical side of the relationship one thing to say to that is that in terms of Lou Grade, ITC films were limited because he didn't want any film that would attract an X certificate. So you, you wouldn't have had bed hopping in a, a Lou Grade film, any, in an ITC film anyway. I don't think there are any poor acting performances at all in the film. I don't think there's one. 
even the Russian agent's sort of English girlfriend, who they've obviously got a, a relationship which is based mainly on physical activity. She's very good in the two scenes. And we haven't mentioned Kate O'Mara. I mean, even though it's a very small part, she's perfectly good because she's got a certain sort of sort of rather stern sexiness about her. And you know she's been planted even before Theodore tells us that she's been planted to sort of catch him out. Um, I, I think the casting was so good and, and everyone plays their part well. We should say that this is available on Blu-ray and it looks stunning not only because of the cinematography, but also the restoration. This is a, a great film to watch if you've got two hours on a, a wet Sunday afternoon or something like that. I, I would highly recommend buying it. I just think it's one of those films, if you want to have two hours and just relax and have an easy watch, it's a great film to be able to do that too. An easy watch, but at the same time, it's quite deep, isn't it? It's got a lot of layers to it when you stop and think about it and, and look at it properly. It's a lovely film and it, and it has been overlooked for too long. Yeah, it's gone under the radar, hasn't it? And I mm -hmm. think that part of the reason that I was so keen to do it is because I think that there were many strings to that ITC bow. And this mm -hmm. is one of those strings that never, ever gets looked at. And mm -hmm. part of the reason we're doing these podcasts is that we want to look at all the aspects of what the company were doing and big up the things that are good and, uh, and where things aren't so good we'll be honest and say that they're not so good but I think this is a great movie that has been overlooked for many many years and really does need to be given a second chance I mean my final message would be have an open mind don't be taken in by what the movie posters look like or don't be taken in by whatever genres it, it tells you it is this is a movie that crosses all sorts of genres it's incredibly thoughtful and philosophical it's a slow burner probably the sort of movie that wouldn't get made nowadays and it looks absolutely glorious and those locations are sumptuous I'd give it nine and a half out of ten there's a lot of depth to it. Stick with it. The pace is right for the movie. It does switch pace partway through. There's some wonderful, wonderful acting. I know we've said it's pretty even throughout, but I've got to point up Sylvia Sims. If you miss this, you are missing one of her finest performances. There is a particular scene which you'll recognise when you see it. And it's, it's just a little treat and it, it deserves a wider audience. So on that note, I'd just like to say thanks again to my co-hosts, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge, for making this such a great podcast to be able to discuss this movie. I really appreciate your efforts, guys. Thanks ever so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been a nice change.
You have been listening to ITC Entertainer World Podcast, Episode 10, The Tamarind Seed. It was hosted by Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. It is a bitter and twisted production for the morning after.